this podcast, which is an audio taken from a webinar held on the 25th of August 2022, chaired by Tim Sedgwick, Chartered Surveyor and Director for the Durham Office of HH London Estates, we learn more about the forthcoming grants and schemes available to farmers and landowners in England this year. Sarah Radcliffe, Forestry and Woodland Manager, chats through the updates for woodland planting grants. And David Morley, Head of Conservation and Environment, talks through the Sustainable Farming Incentive. Over to you, Tim. Thank you very much, everybody, for logging on this evening. Um, we had over 250 people um, register to attend this webinar, which is fun, fantastic. And I'm just checking on the attendees who are joining us here. And we're up to a number where I think we can get started um, for the Rural Grants and Estates, Rural Grants and Schemes update by h, &H Land and Estates. Um, the structure of the evening is we will have presentations from David Morley and Sarah Radcliffe, who I'll introduce shortly, and their presentations will be on Woodland Grants and Schemes and the Sustainable Farming Incentive and some other schemes as well. So the you know, core purpose really is interactive as possible. Presentations will, will be um, gone through and then we'll have a question and answer session. And I can already see some questions popping up in the uh, question and answer bo box and also the chat, but please do keep your questions to the question and answer box, um, please. That would be much appreciated. So our speakers, uh, Sarah is going to go first and she'll say a bit about herself and pass it on and David will go um, second. So thank you very much all for attending um, we're delighted as a company as HNH London States to see so much interest and um, we hope that it will help you in your business in the plethora of change that we are facing as rural businesses and um, yeah we hope it'll answer some questions but not all so of course will be available afterwards and in the weeks to come to assist you with order of requirement and advise you accordingly. So thank you very much. Without further ado, Sarah, I'll pass on to you for your presentation. Thanks, uh, thanks Tim. Um, my name is Sarah Radcliffe. I'm the Forestry and Woodlands Manager at H&H. Um, I recently joined the company from the Forestry Commission. I've spent 14 years at the Forestry Commission doing the grants and licensing. Um, over there, so uh, know, know a lot about the grants and the regulations that you need to get through to get trees in the ground and to manage woodlands. So I was just gonna have um, a quick um, run through the grants that are available at the moment from the Forestry Commission and there's a few from the Woodland Trust as well. Um, so if we can just go to the next slide, please. Thank you. So the first one I'm just going to briefly speak about is the Woodland Creation Planning Grant. Um, so this is to provide funding to prepare a creation plan. So it's not actually for planting the trees, it's to, to get through the, the, the paperwork and the regulations to be able to plant the trees and draw up a woodland creation design plan. Um, the minimum application size is five hectares. Um, and the block size is 0.5 per hectare. Um, and so you get two stages to this one. So stage one is a, a desk-based assessment. So that's the, um, 
looking at any designations that's on the land, for example, like national parks, triple SIs, um, and any existing grants that, that might already be on the land, um, and preparing a basic map. So you get a thousand pounds for doing that bit. Um, if the Forestry Commission think that it's a suitable site after looking at that, you could then go through to stage two, which is £150 per hectare, uh, minus the £1,000 we've already had, um, to produce the actual creation design plan. And this could involve doing some survey work, um, so vegetation surveys and bird surveys, and you can get 70% contribution towards any of those surveys as well. Um, the funding's capped at 30,000 overall, so, uh, but that, if it's a small woodland creation project on a farm, you probably wouldn't get anywhere near the 30,000 there. Um, so basically this, this grant helps you get through the regulation process for the environmental impact assessment that the Forestry Commission have to do on every woodland creation application. So this grant helps you prepare everything so that you can give it to them and it's all done, ready for them to just approve it. Uh, next slide, please. So the next grant is the Woodland Creation, sorry, the Woodland England Woodland Creation Offer. So this is actually planting the trees. So you can potentially get up to £10,000 per hectare with the new additional contributions. Um, and it pays for capital items such as trees, tubes and fences. There's a cap of £8,500 per hectare for the capital items, but the potential additional contributions can take it up a bit higher than that. Um, the eligibility for this one is a minimum application size is one hectare and block size is 0.1 of a hectare. So this might be suitable for farms if you're looking to do some shelter belts. Um, there's also an option for natural colon colonization and you can also get um, operational and recreational access in there. So if you need it to put a track in to um, access the, the woodland going forwards, then you can get a, a payment towards that as well. Uh, next slide, I think it's got something about the additional contributions on it. Um, so there's a few different additional contributions available in, in, in UK at the moment. Um, depending on where you are in the country, it's all map-based. So it depends if um, you fall into a map layer. And you can stack these on top of each other, which is why you can get up to £10,000 per hectare. Although you're unlikely to get every single one of those in one place, but they can be stacked. So, so it does become quite a, uh, a favourable offer. Um, next slide, please. The next grant is the Woodland Carbon Code. So this is a, a voluntary carbon standard for woodland creation projects. Um, this can be added on top of another grant. So you can have your, your Woodland Creation Planning Grant and your UCO application, and then you can have Woodland Carbon Code on top. Um, so as, as trees grow, they take in carbon and store it. Um, native woodlands can store up to 500 tonnes of carbon over a 100-year period. So in the past few years, companies have started to look at offsetting carbon. Um, that they produce and buying carbon units to kind of make themselves net zero. So, so woodlands are a way of companies doing this. So you can buy and sell carbon units that you've grown in your trees, basically. Um, so recently, 
people have paid between five and 15 pounds per tonne of carbon um, through the Woodland Carbon Code. So, so it's an extra bit of money that you can top up your grant with. So it's always worth having a look at Woodland Carbon Code uh, when you're doing any tree planting. Next slide. So the last aspect of grants that I was going to talk about are the, from the Woodland Trust. Uh, these are for more um, small um, small woodlands. So their um, their grant is for a woodland of 0.5 of a hectare with 0.1 of a hectare block. So this is slightly smaller than the UCO funding. So if you were looking at doing some small shelter belts, uh, perhaps the Woodland Trust would be a slightly better so better grant than than UCO. Uh, the grant will cover up to 75% of the tree purchasing costs and potentially 60% of the contractor costs to actually do the work as well. So um, it, it's kind of weighing up the two grants against each other, which we can talk to you about and, and work out which one's best for you. Uh, and then there's more hedges, which is um, subsidized up to 75% of the cost of putting in 100 meters of new hedging. So, so that kind of sits quite nicely with the, the more woods and the more hedges there. So that's just a, a few options that are out there for grants at the moment for tree planting. Um, obviously, if you've got any specific projects that you want to talk about, please do get in touch um, and we can chat through those um, individually because it's all very individual and it all depends whereabouts in the country that you're located at and what you want to do and what you want to plant. So please do get in touch. Um, I'll pass back to Tim now, thank you. Thank you very much, Sarah. A few questions come through, which we will cover at the end. Um, so without further ado, pass you, I'll pass you now on to David Morley, who's going to talk about the Sustainable Farming Incentive. Over to you, David. Thanks very much, Tim. Um, yeah, I'm uh, David Morley. Uh, I look after the conservation environment team at h, &H Land and Estate. So we're involved in trying to help farmers and landowners get uh, well basically get as much money out of the government as they can um it seems to be uh, seems to be the best thing to be doing um so i was going to talk to you mostly about the uh, sustainable farming incentive today um for those of you who are at our webinar in february um some of this will be familiar to you um but there's obviously been a bit more detail um uh, since then and the scheme's actually been launched um, so we have some clarity on some of the things that we weren't so sure about before um, so there's, there's going to be a little bit more information than, uh, than you would have heard last time. Um, yeah, so next, uh, next slide, please. Thanks, Nina. Um, so what's SFI 2022 all about? Well, primarily it's about soil health. That's really the driving force behind it. Um, so one of the key objectives is to enhance the health and fertility of our, our agricultural soils. Um, the government's also thinking it's going to contribute towards carbon net zero, which is obviously the big, the big buzz phrase at the moment. Um, and the, the other key thing that, uh, that the scheme is intended to deliver is to have a look at the environmental condition of moorland in particular, and its potential to deliver public goods. Um, and you have no doubt been got a bit sick of hearing the mantra public money for public goods by now. Um, but that's where this, this comes in here. This is about identifying those public goods um, in order to see what money you can get through schemes in the future. So there are three parts to SFI 2022. Um, there is the arable soil standard, 
there's the improved grassland soil standard. So they're the two that are all about soils. Um, and then there's the moorland and rough grazing standard as well. And we'll have a look at each of one of each of these in turn and see what they're all about. Uh, but before we do that, we'll just have a look at the sort of the, the mechanics of the scheme. How does it actually sort of work? So SFI 2022 is basically open to anyone who is claiming or who's claimed BPS this year or is eligible to claim BPS this year, even if you didn't manage to get a claim in. Um, <clears throat> that's, that, that's basically the eligibility criteria. Applications are supposed to be done online. Uh, the scheme was launched at the end of June. Um, so there's an, there's an online portal through the Rural Payment Service where you can make applications. Reasonably simple application process, you'd be pleased to know. Um, and contrary to what we, uh, what, we, what we had in our previous webinar, there is actually going to be no application window to it. So basically, it, it's open all the time. Um, so you can apply anytime. Um, so you know, if you're busy, if you're busy harvesting your crops or getting your getting your lambs ready for the uh, the autumn sales, you can you can leave it until after that's all out of the way, and it, you'll still be able to do an application. It's a parcel-based scheme, so you can enter as much as you like into the scheme, as little or as much as you want. Um, so it's not like uh, entry-level stewardship, which many of you might have been in uh, a few years ago, which was a whole farm scheme. This is parcel-based, so you can you can decide which land you want to put in it. Um, once you've made an application, uh, the RPA are thinking that they've got quite a slick uh, process uh, for actually uh, getting those processed. So they're expecting to offer agreements within about two months. Um, we'll see whether they can manage that or not, because they certainly take a fair bit longer than that to do countryside stewardship applications, but they're possibly a bit more complicated. Um, so we'll, we'll see how they get on with that. Um, and agreements will be, will be for three years. Um, so unlike countryside stewardship, for example, which is a five-year scheme mostly with some 10-year bits as well, uh, SFI is, is a three-year commitment. And again, the payment schedules are going to be different as well. Um, <clears throat> unlike uh, most of the other schemes we've had uh, in the past, which pay annually in arrears, uh, SFI will pay quarterly in arrears. So the money will be coming in much more frequently, which is good for cash flow. Um, and I think that's quite a, quite a positive development. But basically, agreements can start. As and when, as and when the RPA are ready, so they don't. There's not a particular start date uh, for anything. So essentially, you make an application. Hopefully, within the next couple of months, you'll get off an agreement, and then it'll start. Um, okay. So what do we have to do for each of the standards? Um, so this is the improved grassland soil standard, um, and you'll see there are two different uh, different columns here. There's introductory and intermediate. These are what the government calls uh, levels of ambition. So you can either opt to, to go for the introductory level or the intermediate level. Um, <clears throat> there's quite a bit um, of stuff that's in both. Uh, so in both levels, you've got to get a, get a basic soil assessment done, uh, test your soil organic matter every five years, get a soil management plan drawn up, um, and make sure that you, you've got at least 95% of the land uh, has a green cover on it in winter. So you, know, you don't want to put land into it that you're going to be out wintering your cattle on, basically. Um, and then the difference between the introduction and the intermediate levels is that for the intermediate level, um, you've got to sow 15% of the land that you're putting into the agreement down to a legume and wildflower mix. And for that, you get £58 a hectare instead of £28 a hectare. Um, now, one of the things we didn't know uh, when we did the previous webinar was well, what, what do they actually mean by improved grassland? Um, they have actually clarified that a little bit. Um, so 
grassland that's eligible to put into this scheme is basically it could be either permanent or temporary grass so temporary grass is grass that's only been grass for less than five years permanent is grass that's been grass for more than five years um, the expectation is that the land that will get, would go into a, an SFI application would have been land that's been perhaps reseeded in the last 15 years, um, or certainly that it's had regular ap applications of fertilizer um, up to about sort of 100 kilos per hectare is what they're, they're suggesting might be the sort of amount you might be expecting to be putting on. Um, <clears throat> so fields that are getting a lot less than that probably wouldn't really be uh, eligible for this scheme. Or if you're doing um, herbicide applications with a boom sprayer, that's something else that might indicate that it's land that's eligible, or you've got um, well-maintained field drains. So, so it's it's designed to be for land that's being pretty actively managed. Um, so not all grassland will be eligible for this scheme. So that's the that's the improved grassland soil standard. Then the arable soil standard um, is is fundamentally quite similar, really, in terms of what's required. Uh, again, you've got to undertake a basic soil assessment, um, test soil organic matter every five years, get a soil management plan drawn up, um, and you've got to make sure that you've got uh, green cover on at least seventy percent of the land in the improvement over the winter. Um, and also at the introductory level, you, the, the aim is that you try and increase your, your level of soil organic matter on at least a third of the area that's in the agreement. Um, if you want to trade up to the intermediate level, the one thing you've got to do is of that of that land that's going into, into the green, that's got to have a green cover on it, 20% of that basically has got to have a multi-species green cover. So it's got to be something a bit more interesting than just, just grass, essentially. Um, <clears throat> So if you like, so, so but the other 50% the other doesn't have to have that. So um, the payment rates are slightly lower than they are for the grassland for some reason. Uh, it's only 22 pounds per hectare for introductory and 40 pounds per hectare for intermediate. Um, in terms of doing the soil assessment, um, you need to make sure that you've got a soil, uh, a, basically a soil analysis done um, that's, that's no more than five years out of date. Um, the intention is obviously if you start off with not having any soil assessments at all, you need to get round all the fields that are going into the agreement over the course of the three years of the agreement. So you need to do some each year essentially to, um, to, to tick all the boxes. So I suppose the question is, should you be doing it? Um, well, I think probably if you have a soil management plan already um, and you already do a lot of soil testing, I suppose the answer is pretty obviously yes, because um, there's not much cost to doing it. Um, if you don't, then you obviously need to factor in the cost of doing some of those things. How much is it going to cost you to put together a, a soil management plan? Uh, what's the cost of soil testing going to be over and above what you might be doing anyway? Um, but yeah, probably in a lot of cases, it's still fairly worthwhile. However, there's a bit of a complication um, if you already have some of your land in other schemes of one sort or another. Um, when the schemes originally announced, um, the suggestion was going to be that you could, you could basically stack uh, SFI with countryside stewardship on the same land. Um, but when they've actually launched the scheme, it's turned out not to be quite that case. Um, so there are some options that you can co-locate SFI with, and the most popular ones of those are listed on the screen here, um, but it's actually quite a short list. Um, so most uh, countryside stewardship land isn't going to be eligible for SFI. You won't be able to do it on the same, on the same land, essentially. Um, the one difference is if you've got um, uh, countryside stewardship options that only cover part of the field, 
um, then you can apply for SFI on the rest of that field. So let's say you've got grass margins or something like that around the outside of an arable field, yet you can't get SFI on the grass margins, but you can on the rest of the field. Next slide, please, Nina. Um, <clears throat> things are a little bit more complicated still um, if you've got rot rotational land in countryside stewardship. So, for example, you might have, um, let's say you've got some wild bird seed mix or some whole crop cereals or whatever it might be. Um, so these are options that might that, that will move around your farm um, during the course of your countryside stewardship agreement. And so obviously they're not because they're not in the same place every year. It gets a little bit more complicated in work in terms of working out um, where your eligible land is for SFI. So what the RPA is suggesting that you do is you apply for SFI on the whole area, including those bits that have got the rotational options on them. And the RPA will then look at that and work out how much they need to knock off uh, for the rotational options. And, and then what happens is the as your rotation carries on and moves around, the SFI ineligible area, if you like, will move around with them. So let's say you have 100 hectares of land that you're going to put in the scheme um, and you've got, um, I don't know, some wild bird seed mix in one of the fields and some whole crop in another. In, let's say called fields A and B or something, um, you apply for SFI on the whole 100 hectares, the RPA knock out the area of wild bird seed mix and whole crop from fields A and B, and they give you a total agreement amount of whatever it might be, 80, 80 hectares or something. Um, but then when you move your rotation around, you'll still have 80 hectares, but in subsequent years, let's say you move your wild bird seed mix and uh, whole crop into fields C and D, um, then it's C and D that where the, the, the eligible area will come down um, and you'll get paid on the full amount in fields A and B that have those options in the previous year. So that's quite confusing, but I hope, you, I hope I've tried to explain that. Um, next slide, please, Nia. And um, it's a similar story for uh, land that you've already got in environmental stewardship. So for the most part, this is, this is old HLS agreements of one sort or another. Um, there's a pretty similar list of options that um, you can you can co-locate with um, uh, with SFI. So mostly they're things that are uh, things like educational access, organic management, basic sort of options, um, and one or two others as well. And you'll see it's a similar sort of theme to the ones in countryside stewardship. It's pretty much the same ones. I'm not entirely sure why they've settled on these, and I think you know the, it's, a, it's it's a little bit annoying in a way because. <clears throat> SFI is paying for something quite different to most countryside stewardship options. You know, this is this is this is paying for people to do soil analysis and get soil management plans done. Well, that's not a prerequisite for nearly any of the options in countryside stewardship. So why they've decided to go down this route, not entirely sure. Um, but that's just the way it is. So we've got to kind of work with that. Um, and the other thing to bear in mind, if you're already in another scheme of some description, is that although the scheme has been launched, it's not quite ready for you to make an application yet. Um, so if you're if you're already in countryside stewardship or HLS or whatever, um, before you start on an application, you need to email the RPA and tell them that you're interested in it, and they will then write back to you when they're ready for you to make an application. So there are some there are some administrative things that the RPA have got to put in place before they can be ready for you to, to make that application. And we're not quite there yet, I don't think so. Um, if you don't have any other ex existing schemes at the minute, you can apply straight away. But so that's 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 the difference there. Right. So that's the arable and uh, improved grassland soil standards. Um, next on the list is the moorland and rough grazing standard, and this is a this is a very different beast altogether. Um, <clears throat> now this one is introductory only, so there's only one level to look at at the minute. They're going to they're going to roll out some intermediate and advanced levels for moorland and rough grazing um, in a few years' time. Um, 
but it's introductory only for now. Um, <clears throat> now, in this, this is different to the other sole standards in, in as much as if you've got moorland and rough grazing that is already in HLS or a countryside stewardship uh, agreement of some description, you can uh, stack these with SFI, so, um, and, and you, as you probably should. Um, there are some areas that are in, ineligible for SFI, so things like um, hard tracks or other man-made features and stuff like that. Um, <clears throat> but most areas are eligible for the more than the rough grazing standards. So a lot of stuff that they knock off your BPS claims, so things like scrub, uh, scree, rock, and all those kind of things, they're not eligible for BPS, but they are eligible for the, um, for the SFI payment. So in terms of what you've got to do for more than a rough grazing standard, there are three actions that you've got to take. Uh, firstly, you've got to identify and record uh, soil and vegetation types on your moorland. Um, and you've got to work out what condition they're in um, and what sort of historic features you've got, where they are, what condition they're in. Um, secondly, you've then got to work out what public goods you think your moorland is providing. Um, and thirdly, how can that provision of public, public goods be maintained over the course of time or better still, enhanced? So there's quite a lot to these, uh, these things. There's a, there's a lot of guidance on the uh, DEFRA website about how to go about doing these things, but it's reasonably complicated. Um, <clears throat> we're not gonna go into everything here because otherwise we'd be here till about 10 o'clock at night, um, but, but I'll try and cover a little bit of uh, what's involved in these things so you get some idea of what you've got to do for the money, basically. So, um, so the first action, so this is basically um, where you've got to try and uh, identify your soil types and your vegetation and that kind of thing, what have you actually got. Um, <clears throat> what you need to do is a survey of the land and it's got to be a new survey. You're not allowed to use an old survey that was done before. Um, DEFRA are recommending that that survey is done uh, between mid-July and October. Um, so if you're doing an application, you know, in the, you know, in the next few weeks or something and you're offered an agreement, sort of, you know, I don't know, in December or something like that. It's not until next summer that you need to worry about actually doing the work that's involved here. Um, I mean, the reason why they're suggesting mid-July is obviously to get past the bird breeding season. Um, obviously, you don't have too many birds breeding on your moorlands. You can probably do it a bit earlier than that if you want to. Um, but that's the reason for that date. And what they're suggesting is that you, you need to do a sort of, a, a sort of identify a sample point about every 10 hectares. So if you've got a 3,000 hectare block of moorland, you need to do about 300 sample points across that. So it's quite a bit, quite a bit to go out if you've got a lot of moorland. Obviously, if you've only got a, you know, a 10 hectare moorland block, you've only got to do one sample point. So that's a little bit easier. And what they want you to do at each of those sample points is record what type of soil have you got? Is it a peat soil? Is it a mineral soil? Um, if it's a peat soil, how deep is it? Uh, is it wet peat? Is it dry peat? What sort of condition is it in? Um, is there any bare ground? Um, is there erosion of some description going on? Have you got artificial drainage, which is changing the, the, the nature of the land? Um, and then they're asking you to have a look at some of the vegetation as well. So on a bog habitat, for example, do you have bog mosses there, cotton grasses, heathers, those kind of things? Or is it more of a grassland habitat? Um, what, sort, what sort of things is it? Um, do you have scrub growing there? Is there sort of gorse or, or more interestingly, things like juniper perhaps? Um, is there a bracken? Those, those are the kind of things that need to be recorded. Um, and they want to know things like the average height of vegetation. So is the grass quite tall or is it grazed very short? 
um, what sort of historic features are there? Um, you know, have you, have you got some, you know, some old sheep folds perhaps sort of buried away um, in the grass hoard somewhere? Um, what, you know, what, what else might there be? Um, some, uh, some moorland has a huge amount of uh, historic interest on it. Um, so there, so you basically got to go and find your survey point, have a look at all these different things. Um, the recommendation is take lots of photographs of what you've got there. Uh, so you've got a record of, um, of, of, of what was there when you did the survey. <clears throat> and then the theory is because it's a three-year agreement, you repeat the survey each year. Um, so you go and survey a different point, but within the same 10 hectare block. So you, you move around slightly. Um, but the idea is to try and cover a little bit more of the, of, of the moorland or as much as you can. Um, when you obviously when you're trying to identify where to survey exactly what you want to try and do is identify a point that's reasonably representative so have a look a bit of a you know wider look around say does this does the rest of the fell look like this um, or is this is this is this bit I'm stood on now a little bit different to everything else in which case um, you know you probably want to move somewhere a little bit that's uh, you know a bit more representative so that's the first action so quite a bit involved there um, and then from that, you've then got to try and work out, well, what public goods are we actually delivering? And the sort of public goods that the, the government's interested in are things like carbon storage. So, for example, if you've got a peat soil, um, you know, is it storing carbon? And that's going to depend very much on its uh, current condition. Uh, so if it's in very good condition, it's probably storing a lot of carbon. Um, if it's not, if it's rather dry, maybe it's got, there's quite a lot of bare peat or something um, and it's starting to crack. And uh, there's actually probably quite a lot of carbon getting out of that. Um, there's also things like uh, slowing water flow. So if you've got a lot of vegetation, um, that'll slow the, the flow of water off the moorland. Uh, and you might even have bits of it where, where there's actually water being, being held back there. Um, and these are all very positive things in terms of public goods. Uh, there's clean water. So is the water that's running off the, off the fell, is it, is, it, is it nice, clean, clear water? Um, or is it sort of full of peat or, um, or, or, or a rather strange color or something? Um, there's biodiversity to have a look at as well. Um, you know, how, what, what, what habitats have you got? What kind of species are there? What birds are, are, are sort of nesting on the moorland perhaps? Um, is your heather moorland in good condition? Is there lots and lots of heather cover or is it a bit sort of fragmented? Um, what's the blanket bog like? Has it got plenty of cotton grass and sphagnum and other things that help build the peat? Um, or is it all a bit sort of dried out and not looking so nice? Um, and then finally, there's, there's, there's things like heritage features. So this is this could be historic sites of one sort or another. Um, but also, don't forget the cultural landscape. You know, the, imp the importance of so many of our fells is in um, you know their history of, of, of grazing. Um, you know what what that what that means to the communities that are involved in it. And that's an important part of the heritage um, of the landscape. So yeah, don't forget to don't forget to record that stuff as well. And then obviously the final point is that is is you know given you know what, what having identified what you've got is how do we actually make it better you know what steps could we you know what steps could be taken to sort of improve things a little bit so that's the moorland standard so there's really quite a lot involved in that um so you'd be thinking oh that'll be that'll be paying a lot of money then um well maybe not um it's 265 pounds per agreement plus 10 pound 30 per hectare so it's not an awful lot when you work out the number of survey points you've got to do you work out how many pounds per survey point it's going to be and it isn't an awful lot so there's a there's there's a lot of work involved for not a lot of money um <clears throat> obviously a lot of our moorland um is common land you can that's all still eligible for sfi moorland as well 
um, but it's the Commons Association that needs to apply for that agreement. Uh, unlike BPS, you can't uh, apply for that individually. It's got to come through a Commons Association. <clears throat> and uh, in recognition of the fact there's obviously quite a lot of extra costs in terms of doing that, in terms of negotiating an agreement, you need to have an internal agreement in place to decide how you're going to split the money up, whatever's, whatever's left after the cost of the survey, obviously. Um, and so they pay an, an additional £6.15 per hectare on top of the £10.30 per hectare that you get for generally doing it. So you might be thinking, crikey, that's an awful lot of effort. I'm not sure I'm going to bother with that. Um, but on the other hand, you might, you might think that it's a good idea because um, this is all providing information that is going to drive future schemes. So if you're thinking you're going to have future environmental schemes of any sort on your moorland, you probably want to be doing this. Get that baseline information recorded because that's going to uh, open the door to more funding in the future. One of the things that's a little bit different about SFI to any, other, any of the other agreements um, that we've seen from the government in the past is there's this annual review. There's quite a few, obviously it's a three-year agreement, so you can, you can, but you can review it each year. Um, <clears throat> so what can you do at an annual review? Well, you can add land to the agreement. Um, so if you've started small because you weren't too sure about it, um, you can always add a bit more if you think it's working well. Uh, you can also upgrade a level of ambition on the parcel. So if you decide you're going to go from um, from introductory to intermediate level, you can do that. You can change that in annual review. What you can't do is go backwards. So you can't you can't downgrade your, your level of ambition and you can't take land out of the agreement. Once it's in, it's got to stay in for the three years. Um, the other thing you can do as part of the annual review is uh, shift your rotational land around. So you might have a situation, for example, where you put a parcel of land into the, um, the improved grassland uh, soil standard in year one, uh, but then you actually plow it out and put it into a crop. Well, it can go into the arable uh, standard for year two. So at the annual review point, you can you can change that. So hopefully that will help help the scheme kind of keep up with what's going on on the ground. And in terms of the moorland SFI, um, it's an opportunity to have a look at public goods delivery. Um, are some of those public goods improving? Um, is there other, you know, other different things that you can do um, to try and enhance them? Um, so it's only a three-year scheme, but that, it gives you at least a bit of an opportunity to have a, have a think about that and uh, see how things are progressing over the course of the agreement. But soil standards and the Moreland standard, that's not going to be it for SFI. It's going to become quite a wide-ranging scheme over the next few years. Um, it's going to encompass quite a lot of different things. So there's going to be, in 2023, there's going to be a nutrient management standard and a hedgerow management standard and an integrated pest management standard that are going to be launched. And they're all things that you'll be able to apply for. Um, and then in subsequent years, there's going to be other things uh, appearing on the table as well, like agroforestry, the low and no input grassland that we mentioned earlier that's not eligible for the improved grassland SFI will be eligible for low and no input grassland SFI. Um, but how that's going to sit with countryside stewardship, we're not quite sure yet. Um, and there's also going to be um, other standards for things like farmland biodiversity as well, and then further down the line for orchards, on-farm woodlands, uh, dry stone walls eventually in 2025, about time. Um, and they're eventually going to put something in for organic management in 2025 as well. That's a little bit concerning because um, although you can apply for countryside stewardship um, for organic management in 2023, it looks like there's not going to be anything on the table for, for going into organic schemes in 2024, which looks like a bit of a hole. Um, but maybe they'll revisit those timescales, I don't know. 
Um, but one thing's clear from this list is that it's actually going to get quite complicated. Um, some of these bits and pieces are going to overlap quite a bit, both with countryside stewardship, which is available uh, till 2024, um, and then in its successor scheme, the local nature risk recovery scheme, which is supposed to be coming out late 2024, probably early 2025. Um, not quite sure how some of these things are going to overlap. Uh, and I think the key for a lot of farms is going to be trying to work out well, what land do I put into what scheme? Um, and that's where you're going to need, you know, you're going to need some good advice, basically, in terms of working out what's going to be best to do both for the land um, and getting the most out of the schemes, but also for your farming business as well. Uh, and hopefully that's something that we can we can help you with. I think that's the end. Brilliant, David. Thank you very much indeed. I think uh, I think your summary there at the end, or certainly your your line at the end about it's all getting a bit complicated, was uh, absolutely on the nose. Um, and here at Land and Estates, as you've heard from David, you've heard from Sarah. Um, we are the you know we are the experts. We have the experience, and we are here to advise and assist. Uh, clients old and new with 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 the concerns they have um, and we can add value to those and, and and really guide you and point you in the right direction because this is a sea of change that we're getting from schemes as BPS is phased out and there, there is other things coming in to I don't say replace not necessarily replace it but there are other uh, there are other, other things that you need to be thinking about to supplement income and ultimately improve um, your, your your business and help and, and help along with that. So you know we we're here. We will have the question and answer session now. Um, this will this is this has been recorded. It will be um, circulated to all those registered. It'll, this recording will be shared um, on our social media channels and our YouTube. And we'll have, yeah, as I say, we'll have the question and answer. But if anybody does have any queries, would like to think about doing a sustainable farming incentive application or any of the woodland schemes, and we'll be here. We have the offices at Carlisle, Kendall and Durham, um, and our details are, you know, are readily available for those who you who wish to wish to call and, and, and take advantage of our advice, um, which we'd be delighted to hear from your clients, old and new. So thank you very much to David and Sarah. I will start with the um, some of the questions now, and. Sarah, this is a question that was um, lodged to when you were talking, and it is, will maintenance payments be index linked? That's from an anonymous attendee, a question to say, will maintenance payments be index linked? Now, I would have thought the person there is referring to the £300 a hectare annual maintenance payment or um, with the Woodland Creation Grant. Um, yeah, um, I'm not quite sure what you mean by index linked, but um, the £300 per hectare on the maintenance payment is, is the same for everybody for every agreement. Yeah, I would Sorry, so, I think Tim, go on, David. I think, I think Tim's frozen. So, um, yeah, I, was, I think I think um, I think the suggestion is whether you know. Um, yeah, the RPI is going up quite uh, quite fast at the moment, so our our, our payments going to follow suit. Um, I doubt there'll be ever be index links, and I think this is true for woodland schemes or or any of the other schemes. Um, they, but the government has shown a willingness to sort of look at them periodically. And the countryside stewardship 
um, payment rate as well. And in fact, this includes the woodland maintenance payment because that that was that was two hundred pounds. Yeah, it has recently just has gone up to three hundred. So they yeah. they do they do have a look at them from time to time, and they they have increased them recently for countryside stewardship. And obviously, we're hoping that um, you know when the local nature recovery scheme comes in, um, that that um, that those payment rates will go up again. Um, because they kind of need to probably to counteract the rising costs and 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 the fact that nobody's going to have any, any BPS once we get to 2027 as well. Yeah, so as David said, the, the maintenance payment for UCO has just gone up from 200 to 300 pounds a hectare. So um, um, I don't think it'll be going up again in the in the next year, but they, they, they probably will review it at some point. Right, thank you. Um, question here from Peter, uh, who says, are any of the forestry grants available when ELS or HLS are already in place? Um, no, you'd have to take the land out of any existing schemes. Um, you can still claim BPS on the land when you plant it, but you can't have any other scheme on there. You'd have to speak to Natural England. Uh, Natural England decide whether woodland is going to give a greater environmental benefit than the options that you already have on through the current scheme. So uh, yes, it has to go back to natural England and the land has to be removed. Well, presumably people when they're in ELS, HLS, uh, Sarah, they're coming to an end. Maybe in Peter's case here, you know, being a HLS 10 years, that's maybe coming to an end. Um, and so, yeah, that might be worth, Peter, a, a contact with us afterwards to, to give you some of yeah. the options to see what's going to be the best way of replacing that income that you've probably been enjoying from HLS um, and, and what you could do, whether that's through woodland creation or the um, countryside stewardship or sustainable farm incentive. Um, we are here to assist you with that. So maybe worth contacting the team after 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 the, tonight. Um, the um not sure whether we can answer this tonight but this is a question um maybe just to seek your opinion from uh, david and sarah on this one uh, a lot of farmers are concerned about the rising cost of energy uh, will there be anything for renewable or green energy from these schemes i don't know <laughs> um, yeah. well that would be the answer david I, yeah I haven't, I haven't heard of anything so far i mean logically you would think yeah i mean crikey there must be there must be so many opportunities really on um you know in a, in a sort of farm setting to you know to really make a contribution to you know to these kind of things so you would think logically there ought to be something coming down the line but i don't know of anything specific at the moment okay um if we could get some more questions typed ahead just while i'm going through them all um there's the next question from Elliot. Should we start any inquiries direct to our usual account manager in brackets, Thomas A, Thomas Armstrong, or set up meetings directly uh, with David and Sarah? You're more than welcome to set up meetings directly with David and Sarah. Uh, you visit the website for the account details. When we circulate this uh, presentation afterwards, it has everybody's details, telephone numbers on to make that, um, make that call and set up that meeting. We'd be delighted delighted to hear from you. Um, David, I've got a couple of general questions, really, just observation questions for you. And Sarah, I'll have, I'll have some for you as well. Um, 
we said it was great play made by the RPA of the lump sum exit support scheme for farmers are basically getting paid to retire. Um, how have how have you seen out there? Has there been many much take up of that, or do you uh, you know what's your view on it? Um, no, it hasn't. There hasn't been a huge amount of interest in it. I think. I think the, the, the trouble with the lump sum exit scheme is that essentially it's only going to pay you what you would have ha had anyway um, through to the end of BPS. So while it sort of gives you a bit of a, a you know an early, you know, gives you that money a little bit earlier, I suppose. Um, you know, so it might be useful in some circumstances. But in any cases where you've got somebody coming in behind you or you know you're a part of a partnership or something like that and only certain partners want to retire it just doesn't it just isn't going to work um because there are so many restrictions then with what the remaining business can do and obviously you've got to farm it effectively without bps so um yeah it's it's it, it, it it's possibly useful in certain situations you know when for example if you know if you're at the end of the tenancy um you know and you're actually getting out of farming yeah great you might as well do it um but um, for, for a lot of people, it's probably not, it's not a great idea. Okay, thank you, David. Yeah, um, the, uh, we have another question from anonymous attendee. Um, and this is for Countryside Stewardship, this question. As per RP15, which is the code in Countryside Stewardship for concrete yard renewal, do you need planning permission or what consents do you need to provide? Um, yeah, I guess, gosh, yes, we get that question a lot. Um, yeah, you don't, um, it, it, it depends, on, it slightly depends on the circumstances. It depends how much how much concrete you're putting down and what was there before. Um, if it's a relatively small amount of concrete, and I can't remember exactly what the limit is off the top of my head, um, but it's a relatively small amount of concrete and you're basically just replacing something that's already there, no, you don't need planning permission for that. Um, but if you're concreting over something that isn't concrete before, then you might need planning consent for that. And certainly if it's a very big area or it's right next to a road or something like that, then you might find that you do need planning consent. Um, what the scheme asks you to do is to actually um, consult with the local planning authority when you put the application in. And they're supposed to come back to you and tell you whether you really need planning or not in that particular circumstance. Um, the trouble is with a lot of local planning authorities, of course, they charge you for that service, which isn't very helpful. So if you didn't think you needed planning in the first place, the last thing you want to do is then paying somebody to tell you that you didn't need planning anyway. Um, but that's essentially that's essentially how it's supposed to work. Great, thank you, thank you, David. Um, Sarah, this one, well, is, is an observation one from me, from me really, and I'd look in at seeking your opinion, really. Um, a, a number of people watching might not be considering planting, you know, some, some may just be looking at some smaller fields which are less, product, you know, less productive, um, and they can obviously take advantage with your help and advice on some of the brilliant uh, attractive schemes that are available financially. The question relates on sort of timber prices and we're looking at gas flying through the roof and, uh, and all the other costs. Do you think it's a wise investment for people to be planting trees now to look forward to the timber harvest and, and you know, how that might help them with their energy costs then and potentially be very, very lucrative? Um. Yeah, that's a million dollar question, that one. Um, um, currently, timber prices are high. 
they they went up in the middle of, of COVID. Um, they shot up um, partly because everybody wanted to do DIY and everyone wanted fence posts and decking. So timber prices went up um, and they've stayed high. They had that currently they're not going up, but they've, they've plateaued at, at, at a reasonably high figure. What they'll be like in 15, 20 years time when when what you're planting now is ready for, for thinning, I don't know. Nobody could answer that. Um, I would like to think that they, they will stay, stay high and um, that we can provide um, locally sourced English grown, UK grown timber um, instead of importing as much timber as we do from, from other countries. Um, but yeah, um, I can't answer that question because I've not got a, a, a crystal ball. Exactly, yeah, that's exactly right. Um, and, and David, do you want to sort of tell tell the audience a little bit about um, countryside stewardship next year, looking ahead to some of the just, just some of the deadlines for countryside stewardship and, and what people need to be thinking about now, and, and maybe give us a, give us a call. Okay, yeah, um, yeah, twenty twenty three is probably going to be the last year of countryside stewardship applications. Um, it's still operating under a sort of single application window. Um, <clears throat> so there's some quite hard deadlines in terms of things that you've got to do. Um, so for higher tier, um, the application window is probably going to be open again between February and April next year. Um, you might potentially have to do quite a bit of preparatory work if you're looking at higher tier. So for example, if you're looking at doing some woodland options, you need to have a woodland management plan in place and it needs to be approved by the Forestry Commission before you can do an application. So you need to be doing that now, probably, if you haven't done it already. Um, <clears throat> similarly, if you're looking at some other options that require things like feasibility studies or implementation plans of some sort, again, you probably need to be applying for the grant funding to get those things done right now, because otherwise you're gonna run out of time. Um, so that's so that's higher tier. Um, Mid-tier, I think we're expecting the same application window again next year. So it'll probably run through till the end of July. Um, if you're looking at including things like catchment sensitive farming grants within those applications, so things like you know, concreting or roofing over middens and what have you, <clears throat> those things have got to be lodged with the catchment sensitive farming team much, much earlier in the process than they used to be. Um, and I think it's probably something like about second week in May, I think those those things have to be done by. So again, you need to be starting the process quite early. Uh, if you leave it until after all the BPS claims are done and all that kind of stuff, you're probably going to miss the boat. Um, so yeah, there's, there's a few things to think about from that point of view. Um, capital grants under countryside stewardship, so things like, um, you know, hedge restoration, walling, um, and standalone water capital grants like the things we were mentioning a second ago, that, that, that scheme's open all the time now. Um, so you can make an application for those things anytime. Um, but again, obviously things like catchment sensitive farming grants need approval from a catchment sensitive farming officer. There's quite a long lead time in that. Um, so yeah, you probably want to start that process sooner rather than later. Um, and then, yeah, what will happen after that? We're not entirely sure. Um, local nature recovery is supposed to be replacing countryside stewardship in 2024, but probably won't be ready until the end of 2024 and maybe being realistic, maybe not even until 2025. Um, so there could be a bit of a gap um, in terms of um, what's going on. So 
<laughs> and the other thing that the people have said is that you, um, if you if you end up going into countryside stewardship, and then when uh, local nature recovery comes out, it looks like it's more lucrative for the same management. You'll be able to go uh, switch straight across from one to the other. So don't don't be sat around thinking, oh, I'm going to wait for local nature recovery to come in before I do anything. Um, if you want to do something, it's probably worth looking at countryside stewardship now. Um, and, and actually get something up and running. There's really nothing, nothing to be lost by doing that. Can I just add a bit about the, the Woodland Higher Tier Countryside Stewardship um, uh, applications? Um, David just touched on it. You do need a, a Woodland Management Plan um, um, for that, which we can help you with if you haven't already got one. Um, they need to be with the Forestry Commission by Christmas for them to be able to approve them in time for the higher tier window next year. Um, so if you haven't got one and you want to go into higher tier for the woodland next year, then you do need a, a woodland management plan first. Um, the, the woodland um, applications, um, they kind of link with your management plan. So there's a, a, a WD2 is the, the prescription that Countryside Stewardship uses for, for woodland. And then there's also the whole suite of capital items that you can get in the, the agri um, applications as well. So um, yeah, if you've got any woodlands that um, on your farms, uh, more than three hectares, it has to be more than three hectares. Uh, we can look at doing a management plan and, and getting into Countryside Stewardship next year. Great, thank you very much. Thank you very much, Sarah. Um, just uh, we've about five minutes left on the allocated time. Um, so if you have a burning question that you 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 really want to get the team to answer, do start to type in now. I've just got two uh, more current questions from the audience. Um, this is from an anonymous attendee. Will capital grant rates increase, and when do they normally look at increasing the standard costs? Yeah, that's a good. That's a good question. I yeah, there, there was a, there was a lot of talk um, when they increased the uh, the annual payment rates in countryside stewardship that they were going to look at the capital grant rates as well, um, and they didn't. Um, and I'm not entirely sure why, because in some ways, on the it's the capital grant side of things where things have really got out of kilter now, because the standard costs just don't get anywhere near covering uh, a lot of costs for for a lot of those capital items. Um, and I think they there's a possibility they may increase. Um, this year, but they may decide with only one year one year to go in countryside stewardship that they don't necessarily feel the burning need to do that. So we might have to wait until the next schemes come in before we before we see a bit of an increase, um, which would be a bit of a shame because even you know I mean just things like fencing. I mean it's um, um, you know the cost of timber and um, you know and all the materials it's just it's gone through the roof. So. You know, and trying to get hedge plants and things like that, they're, they're, they're difficult to get hold of now. So yeah, it would have been nice if things had gone up a little bit, but um, but they haven't yet, and there's no promises at the moment. That's great. Uh, David, thank you. And um, what will probably be one of the final questions here, um, this is quite a longish one, uh, but going back to the lump sum exit support scheme, if a tenant were to take this option, so taking the lump sum support uh, and left the landlord with the farm with no entitlements to let, what scheme may you recommend an ingoing tenant uh, on that farm to explore? Obviously, for any incoming tenant, it would make taking on a farm with no entitlements available very um, difficult. 
So, I mean, David, over you, over to you, I've got my own opinions and views on that. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it is a difficult situation. I mean, I think it, it obviously, who, who owns the entitlements is, a, um, you know, depends a lot on the tenancy. Um, and in some cases, um, <clears throat> the, the, it's the landlord that actually owns the entitlement. So they would actually have to be reverted to him and the tenant couldn't do the lump sum exit scheme. Um, but um, if, the, if the entitlements do in, in, you know, belong to the tenant and they decide to go for that, um, then, then obviously those entitlements are extinguished, so that's right. Um, <clears throat> I mean, if you're thinking that it might make it difficult to take a farmer with no entitlements, obviously that is going to be the case for everybody once we get to 2027. I mean, BPS is gone anyway by then. So, um, you know, it's a, it's a fairly short period of time really before that's going to be the reality for, for everyone. So yeah, you, everyone needs to be looking at other schemes and what they can get involved in. Um, <clears throat> I would certainly recommend that anybody coming into a farm looks at SFI, um, whether that's going to suit the suit the ground or not. And again, you know, probably look at countryside stewardship as well. I mean, it's just sometimes a little bit difficult when you first come onto a farm to know what options are going to be best. And I would normally recommend that you probably, you know, live on the land for a year and sort of see how things are um, before you rush into a scheme. Um, but having said that, obviously countryside stewardship is disappearing. So um, you may want to get in while you can. Um, but yeah, you need to you need to look at any of these schemes as and when they when they come available, and uh, you know grab grab whatever's out there with with both hands. But it is going to make some it is going to be some difficult decisions, I think, for farmers in the next uh, the next few years, um, because you know I think that you know it'll, it'll be you know to to actually embrace the government's agenda of you know sort of you know sustainable, environmentally friendly farming um, is going to mean quite a shift in a lot of farming businesses, probably. Um, and if you don't do that, then really you're going to have to look at how, you know, how can I actually make a profit without without getting any money from the government at all. Uh, and that's the other option you know, to try and see if you can live without schemes. But uh, yeah, not easy. Yeah, that's uh, great. Thank you, David. Um, on the uh, last sort of finishing off with the last question, and this is a bit of a rhetorical one because uh it's given that every scheme is too complicated for the average which <laughs> farmer costs you know we've heard, we're hearing it from the from the horse's mouth though so to speak that uh that, that they are too complicated and people will need our assistance and advice on on this um so yeah you know we will be we'll be delighted to, to assist people and i really feel that we can add value um to those people and, and help them pick the best schemes um and and ways to do it for their business so uh i think we will call it a day there um do join us at the next um the next webinar that we'll have which we, we will publicize that date as soon as possible as this is ever changing. We'll also be at Agri Expo, Bordeaux Agri Expo, where we will have DEFRA on a panel to quiz them and to try and lobby them um, in the farmers' favour. Uh, that's at the end of October at, at, at Bordeaux Mart. So do please come along to that. As I said, this has been recorded and be circulated to all those who've attended and registered and be on our YouTube channel. So if anything, has uh, pricked your ears, you require further advice, do get in touch with any member of the team. So thank you very much to our speakers. Thank you for you attending and I wish you all a very good evening.
We hope that you enjoyed the webinar audio recording. If you'd like any more advice on these schemes, please get in touch via one of our H&H London Estates offices. All details are on their website, which is www.hhlandestates.co.uk. Thank you for listening. Thank you.